You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And we are joined today by the one and only Andy Berkey. And before I forget, I want to give you a link to his Instagram. It's at Andy underscore Berkey, B-I-R-K-E-Y, if you want to check out some of Andy's work. So welcome, Andy. Hey, well, hi, guys. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm all like flustered. I'm all amped up. Well, that's that's awesome. I, I already see kind of the first thing I want to ask you about sitting right over, I think it's your right shoulder, assuming your camera is not mirrored around. You are weird and I like you. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, it just came to me one day during a walk, uh, a, a morning walk. Um, just uh, sometimes I twist stuff up in my head and and I it's just a, an effort to, to say, you know, the humanity of we're weird. And um, I am drawn to weird people, people that are outside of the normal headspace of, um, you know, nine to five and, and TV dinners and TV shows. So if uh, you're a creative spirit, I, I am instantly gravitating toward you. Well, I, I know the, the first time I saw it, I thought, you know, this is, this is something you might hear in like second grade, first day of second grade. <laughs> one, of, one of your one of your lifelong friends would come up and say something like that to you. And from there forward, the stories would be written. And I've always thought that's such a great mantra. And it, it for sure within the maker community, I think that applies so well. Cause I, I think number one, the the group of us that make up the maker community as it were, which I, you know, the door's open, right? Anybody can be one of those people, but, but we've all, we're all stepping to a slightly different rhythm than what you see in most people's lives. And I I feel like, and maybe the question here is, do you you get the same feeling that when you tell people what you do, or you start talking about the work that you do, you, you get the dog who just heard the weird sound on the, on the radio, (laughs) kind of giving you a look like, what, what was that? So I, I don't know, tell, tell me a little bit about your experience with sharing the craft that is what happens in your shop with other people. <laughs> well, to, I, I re- remember being at a party, you know, cocktail party. I think it was a holiday party. And I was, a, I'm way out of place in social settings like that. So I was just sitting on a couch and, and some guy came over and said, um, hey, so where do you work? And I feel bad because it was rude, but I said, um, in my garage and he goes, Oh, okay. And he gets up and he leaves. He's gone. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's about right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, um, I mean, it was such a cool thing to find when you've been kind of, uh, on the, I don't know, on the outskirts of, you know, the outlier, right. You've been there your whole life and you're pretty comfortable there. It was it was pretty cool. I think it was back in about 2017 when somebody reached out to me and, and invited me into the maker maker world. And, um, you know, I was super um, hesitant to come in and, you know, share my stuff because it's kind of no one really does it that I know of. And, um, you know, everybody just sucked me right in. And it was like, uh, I, you know, I'd found all the rest of the weird kids in the back of art class. And it was, it was on from that, that point on. Well, isn't it amazing? Um, I've been in a, a few settings where there's been either a bunch of fellow YouTube creators or fellow, uh, I don't, I hate, I hate the word content creator because that's not what it is. 
you're you're sharing your work. You're you're not creating content for content's sake. You're you're creating your work and then you're sharing it for sharing's sake, right? But when you get in a room full of of people who are who are that way or who have a similar background, it's amazing how quickly. I mean, it seems like you've been friends for fifty years. the The conversation yeah. isn't hard, and it's not, "Hey, I, I'm meeting this person I've never met before." It's like you almost know each other through your work, and it, it's interesting. It is very interesting that way, and that it's not an exclusive group, but everybody within the group really has a, a lot of common thread. Totally agree. Totally agree. It's it's like you've you've known each other, and you just slide right into it, and you're off and running. Yeah. And so I, I guess I kind of between you and Brian, I have, I'm going to say I have a lot of jealousy that you work for yourself and you've been self-employed for an amount of time. That's always been sort of a goal of mine. Um, but I've, I'm stuck in the world of architecture. That That's my life. And it has been for a very long time. And there's almost no way to do that alone. And, and I, I'm a little green with envy that you guys get to operate in the way that you operate. So it's really kind of cool to see. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was shocked that you get up at 4 a.m. Me being self-employed, I, I I choose my own own hours, and 4 a.m. is not not one of them. <laughs> I was in the shop at pre six this morning, so um, I don't I don't know. That's just where where I'm the freshest, and uh, you know some people are are wired for night and. Um, mornings are my gig. So Fiona and I are typically out before uh, sunrise, um, unless we're, you know, with a camera on the weekends out out in the country. But, um, but yeah, I typically, I don't know, between six is a is a solid start for me, usually not not any later than seven, a couple cups of coffee and ready to rock. (laughs) So so your morning routine is is taking Fiona out for a morning walk, taking pictures of the sunrise before you get to work and get after it. Then that's, I think that's one of the things that uh, people on Instagram really know you for are your morning sunrise pictures. Yeah. That's a, it's a meditation. I'll be honest. It's um, I mean, yeah, I need to exercise my dog, but, um, but the, the photography and just the effort to get out, um, you know, we're, we're wide open sky around here, um, in central Illinois. So, you know, that, that concept of knowing your place in the universe to me is just super healthy. And, and there's nothing does that quick, quicker than a wide open sky and a sunrise for me. So it's a, it's a healthy meditative, uh, place for me. Kind of sets the tone for the day. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, if, you, if you're really deep in some uh, crazy math, gothic stuff, you know, that is just a critical thing to, to you know, just do a mind wash in the morning and, and uh, kind of then you're refreshed and can get back after it again. So I can go weird places if, if I don't do that. Uh, quite frankly. Yeah. So your mind that uh, is kind of working on the problems that you're going to, to uh, encounter once you get into the shop subconsciously. You know, I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm trying to not think about that at all. Uh, kind of like sleep for me is that if I can get away from the, from the problem solving thing that's always going in our heads, uh, if I can drop out of that for a half an hour, then I'm, then I'm in, in better shape. 
ready to ready to go. So, uh, speaking of working in your shop, I on your Instagram I saw that you were doing a repair to a, uh, a church that had been vandalized. Um, yeah. So how's that? I'm I'm curious about how that process is because you only have small parts and pieces of the whole thing of what this thing is going to look like. Um, I think I, maybe I should yeah. ask you if you could describe it since this is mainly an audio podcast. Um, <laughs> what it looks like? Well, it's a yeah, it's a it's a half circle, kind of a bas relief panel of just organic uh, acanthus leaves that um, is above an exterior door. Actually, two two doors, um, and somebody was trying to uh, get to the copper flashing uh, on the little portico roof and and beat the heck out of this panel and then the uh very efficient janitor swept up a lot of the pieces and and disposed of them in anticipation of my arrival so it was uh. like but um but yeah on that one um i was able to remove um you know maybe a square foot maybe two square feet of of the panel which was important because uh, I can use that mainly for uh, finding the depth of the relief and the texturing. Um, so I, at least I have that. And then um, I immediately had the church secretary put out a call, uh, email blast to everybody um, for pictures of ancestors and weddings and anything like that to get reference photos. And then, uh, and then I, got a couple of them that I could piece together um, with a, a digital projector in the shop and um, started moving that around till till I could mess with the aspect and everything and and get a, a good idea. I mean, this one's pretty easy. Well, all of that, what I just described was easier because it's organic shapes. So if I'm in the ballpark, I'm, I'm going to be good enough for this one. So what I'll do is I'll um, sculpt it in plasticine modeling clay and then uh make a make a silicone mold out of it and uh and then cast it in cold cast plastic um which is super durable easy to work with easy to mount so uh and a lot of those this was like a kind of like a weird plaster material that it was an exterior application so i was pretty surprised to see what what it was but they had had some kind of a a varnish seal on it to get it weatherproofed and um but in a lot of those uh plaster applications i'll i'll go back in with cold cast plastic and unless it's you know something that you know that has to be done back in plaster um so yeah that's kind of it's crazy you know you 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 develop a reputation regionally and uh stuff like that happens and and uh, you get this panic call and and you roll out as quick as you can and try to get there i also work with some stained glass studios that um, if there's a fire damage or vandalism damage or something like that a lot of times they'll want me to stabilize and and get the panel down uh horizontally and get it to their benches because they don't want to do that stuff so and i carry a lot of insurance for other people's property in my possession <laughs> yeah i imagine so so uh, when you're doing this this work on this particular job you're able to get a whole bunch of pictures if you weren't able to get a whole bunch of pictures how would you have gone about recreating this this thing so you could get the church back repaired and ordered? And i guess we didn't 
before you answer, I guess we didn't actually uh, introduce to people that may not have known you exactly what you do. But uh, you you are I am I know uh, when we've talked before, you say don't call me an expert, but uh, I I view you as an expert in restoring historical buildings, especially churches and goth type style architecture. So okay, so That's now yeah, so now back to my my question. So what would uh, what would you have done um, if you didn't have all those pieces to reference off of, or those photos to reference off of, and you just had just maybe just a little piece of kind of to give you a hint of kind of what it looked like? Uh, probably then I, I, I have a pretty good library here in my office of um, old, a lot of around here, uh, a lot of um, the decorative elements on churches that are, you know, 100, 125 years old around here, a lot of the decorative elements came out of plaster houses out of Chicago. So um, I've got a couple of catalogs, original catalogs from, you know, the turn of the century and the, up to the 20s. And that's where a lot of um, what I work on, that's when a lot of those churches were built. So I, I go directly there. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's funny, it's like Harry Potter, you know, leather bound books and the dust, you know, coming off of them and <laughs> a Dumbledore sitting there with, you know, <laughs> jeweler's loops on and mm, feel like you should have a long beard, you know, mm. but yeah, that's, you know, it's all about reference material and then just having a familiarity with, with that age of building and, um, you know, just, just, I guess it's, it is experience, but, um, and then trying to be the opposite of an expert, trying to be the, the, the moron, you know, just trying to not miss any hints that the, the building is giving you. Um, and like in this particular one, there was, uh, there was the, the busted out panel. And then there was another one just down the block in the same building that, um, there was a wood panel covering what would have been the same panel. And uh, so the first thing I did was suggest that we pull that off in the hopes that, that, the, that the other panel was still behind there. Um, it wasn't, but it was worth the effort to, to pull that off. And, and then they decided to go ahead and uh, have me make both panels. So, so they're slightly different sizes, but I'll, I'll sculpt the bigger size and then and then make it smaller for the other one. So so it's well, cheating, man. It's super cheating. <laughs> yeah, looking up the answers in the back of the textbook. I mean, you know, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting to me to to I've followed your work. I I'm going to say probably since you came on the scene, um there there are a number of mutual folks that that we know and i've always been fascinated by the fact that what you do is part detective work part maker part designer and there's the question i would have around that is two twofold number one how did you fall into this niche because it is a very small um on the architecture side i have done uh, some religious work some uh, some buildings of that nature for different, I'll call it, uh, well, just different religions. You know, there's the Catholic Church, Methodist, and and they all have their on-staff person who looks after all of the symbolism and the way things are done. 
and to become an expert in that is is sort of one one vein but then to actually be able to build the stuff to meet the requirements of of a church that's going to be there not 10 or 15 years but maybe 100 or 150 years is is quite the task so where where did it begin for you it you know which which was first chicken or the egg and then how did you settle into that niche <laughs> you know it, it's an unscripted I, there's no way you could you could say okay kids this is how you get into this business because it's you know i was just responding to stuff that i had an opportunity to do and um and quite frankly was willing to do stuff that no one else wanted to touch um but yeah, I was very fortunate. I was working, uh, doing project management and finished carpentry down in the Virgin Islands for six years. And it was about time to come back to the States, tired of living on a rock and, um, and met a guy that said, you know, I'm working at, at uh, Norfolk Naval Shipyard, um, you know, doing contractor work there. You know, I could, if you want to move back to the States, I could get you on doing something there. So, yeah, I, I said, yeah, okay, we're, we're having a go at that. And, um, and I, I found myself um, working on a government um, funded job, which, you know, in, in this, in restoration, it's all about your resume, right? So without knowing it, um, I got one of the one of the best things to have on my resume of a federally funded, <clears throat> you know, government owned building that uh, it was a church. It was called the chapel under four flags. So they had four different religions in one building. Super weird. I was only there for about three months before I bailed out of the of Virginia. And uh, <clears throat> and then it that it just uh, started to become uh something that I had that resume and I flushed it out with some conferences and, and things like that and uh, got a couple opportunities. And <clears throat> next thing you know, you've, you have a resume that actually looks like you know what you're doing, even though you completely don't. So, so yeah. And, and then, yeah. And then the, the a Catholic church that uh, was completely gutted, a, a neo-Gothic uh, space which was a pretty very cool uh, room it had a 60 foot vault in it and had been completely gutted in vatican ii which uh it mm. was in the early 70s a lot of the church uh they decided that they were going to modernize those rooms and take out all the the, the neo-gothic um, design furnitures and altar pieces and then, uh, you know, and then 30 years later, they decided they wanted to put them back in because now new rules were in that they couldn't just, you know, tear it out again. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that what comes around goes around. And even in the, the big world of religion, that is the case as well. I mean, there was, um, yeah, the Vatican II was a, a very thick line of demarcation pre and post and things changed, uh, you know, who knows for the better or for the worse, but but it is uh, interesting to see how that's all come back now and ask anybody where they want to get married and they want to get married in the old cathedral. Right. I mean, there's, Absolutely. there's, there's some charm and, and just the detail in those buildings is amazing. And, you know, I think back, Andy, when I look at your work and, and I feel like, and, and I know we probably see the tip of the iceberg. We probably don't see the big picture of what, what all it is you do. But when I walk into some of those buildings and I think how many craftsmen did it take 
to put this sucker together a hundred years ago without modern tools and all of that. I mean, there's a whole different appreciation for the level of, you know, the number of man hours that were put into making those buildings come to life. It's, um, but when you really have to do a deep dive work on, uh, so like an interior, like, like the, the one I just described, um, we put again, one of the, the very first things on site is to put out a call for anything related to the history of the church. In that case, when they were tearing that stuff out in the 70s, they were literally had backed up dumpsters and were throwing the altar piece in, in the uh, dumpster. And people were climbing in and getting them out right like as soon as they would throw them in. And a lot of those pieces came back. And uh, so then, you know, again, same sort of deal. You, uh, you have a place to start and you can start designing around historical people pieces and and I've always try just kind of from a uh, nostalgia point of view I try to put almost every piece that I can that comes back in that kind of a call put it put it integrated into the the pieces in some way shape or form what would you say if if you broke it down what how much time do you spend designing versus how much time do you spend investigating and replicating? Because I know there there's a fine line between recreating something and designing something that looks like something else. Yeah. Um, well, when it, I mean, this is getting kind of deep into the weeds of especially the Catholic stuff, because that's that's probably 80 percent of my work is with the Catholic Church. Um, but you know, the liturgy has changed um, since you can't build what was there. You can't, you know, do a rest, uh, a full on restoration like you would on a, you know, federally funded project where you are exactly replicating what was there. So we're trying to stay just in the, the, the sense of that and, and pay homage to what was there. 98% uh, of people think it's the original stuff if we do our job right. Um, but now they can do like the big thing is back in the day, the priest had his back to the audience. <clears throat> now we've pulled the where the table where he does all his um, stuff, whatever you, you call it. Um, we've pulled that away now so he can be behind there and face the audience. So just nuance like that that um and you know you just try to so i guess in in answer to your question it's probably these things can take years to develop um but you're probably doing 20 percent design work uh and research um it, and it and then i'm not a super good designer on paper so you know i i kind of just start building something for the most part. I mean, I have an idea of what I'm, I'm doing. And if I need to, you know, have drawings or whatever, I can do that. <clears throat> but for me, I don't, I very rarely use really tight drawings. Um, sometimes I get to work with a designer. You know, I've worked with um, theater designers to, in some of these things. Um, and I've learned a lot from those, from those people. But um but yeah, I, I keep it kind of loosey goosey so that the the, um, the design and the build kind of go along, develop, you know, in the same vein. So probably eighty percent in that stage and twenty percent in the research and and uh, development, so to speak. So it, it's kind of non traditional. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, it, it w in my work in carpentry, I've worked on a lot of old houses. And so I have picked up and felt a lot of old boards and stuff that is old uh, that is worn and shown the test of time and has a story. And when a client asked me to do a uh, distressed piece to make it look old, I, I never feel like I can ever get it there because I know too much about what the original should look like. So when I step back, yeah, it looks passable. But when I get up close to it, I, I'm really disappointed in my work that I, I was not able to get it 100% accurate. When you're uh, doing your restorations, do you do you fight that same battle or or have you uh, perfected the art of, of making it look original or blend into something that's a super old church? Well, yeah, I, I, get, I see where you're going. Um, I have to, I have to be able to replicate that patina and wear because a lot of times my work is side by side and including pieces that are 100 years old. <clears throat> so they have, you know, six layers of lead-based paint on them, you know, which rounds all the corners. There's there's wear on the corners. So nothing is, you know how like when you're when you're building a new piece of furniture, you we love sharp, crisp edges that are, you know, plain surfaces, not sanded, all that. That all goes out the window. <clears throat> so it's it's all about how do we make this surface match a hundred-year-old piece that's got a bunch of paint on it that you know we're putting another layer to get it the right color and then and i and i always say in churches you know use the back of your hand and imagine uh your grandma's the back of her hand that kind of parchment type skin that that uh octogenarians have rub you know use that side touch it there and see how it feels right no sharp edges at all you know everything's just got a very slight round to it. And uh, because again, it's to me, the highest uh, level that I could hold myself to is if no one else, no one knows that I was there. So, uh, you know, one time I was in back of, of a piece of furniture that we were working on and, and some people came in, <clears throat> tourists, you know, just they're always and a lot of times we're working in a live space, but I remember these ladies walked in and I remember a lady kind of clutching her, her heart a little bit. And she said, oh, it's just so nice that they didn't tear this, this furniture out. And we had just installed it like a week and a half earlier. So to me, um, it's kind of goes against your, <laughs> you know, craftsman ego type of thing that you want to be known for your, the work that you've produced. Uh, for me, it, I flip that on its edge and say, hey, it's, you know, I don't sign any of my work. I don't put business cards inside of spaces to be found in 200 years or anything. Uh, <clears throat> I just I just need to disappear into the piece and let the piece, um, you know, do what it was designed to do originally. Interestingly enough, Andy, I think that's probably the piece of your personality that I've latched onto the most. And it's um, I'm, I'm trying to think how to describe it for for folks who don't follow you and don't know who you are but it's a it's an amount of of selflessness that i see and it's interesting that you talk about your work in that way because i see it in other parts of your personality and i would say number one um the way that you approach other people um i would say who are asking for advice but maybe encouragement I, i've seen you, you have these Instagram stories that are just these quick little blurbs of things. And it's always, 
this really great tie-in and and I would say the attitude is is just fantastic. Uh, your uh, your joy is infectious. That's a that's a good way to say it. But I've seen I've seen the videos that you've done uh, with your sister in the van rides and the ice cream shop visits and and things like that. And uh, and the one piece that I wrote down and I can't remember when you posted this series of videos, but I know it's it's probably been well over a year. It might be two years ago. It was the neighbor kid. And I want to say his name was Georgie. Have I got that right? Yeah, Georgie. Yeah, and it's I, coming, coming over this weekend. Yeah, and and where where I'm going with this, and and there there's a, there is a question buried in here. <laughs> is the the series I saw with Georgie is you were teaching him about entrepreneurship in mowing yards and how you know how to charge for them. Uh, the the level of skill and craftsmanship and pride that you need to put in your work and all of that stuff. And I, I number one, I, I think that that tells me volumes about your personality, just seeing how you take the time to mentor people who pro probably didn't come up and ask for you to, to, to be that person, but you saw these opportunities to make somebody just one notch better. And my question is, and I don't know the answer to this. Do you work alone or have you worked with other people? And what is what have those relationships been like? Yeah, when I when I moved back to the States to hear um, my brother-in-law worked for, for me for five years. And it was just it was just magical because um, we had, you know, we just to this day we get along. Um, he he moved on to do some other stuff in the military and stuff. But um, but that was super cool. And then I kind of lost my way the way that I feel like I'm most comfortable being for about five years I I had expanded uh gotten a business partner and gotten six employees I think it was and we were managing apartments and doing restoration work and you know the crews the the guys would come in and start on the new construction side doing trim carpentry and then they would work themselves over into the and I just the worst thing in the world was the best thing for me. And that was, um, 2008, 2009 crash that just flushed a lot, a lot of, uh, people out of the business and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people rolled over on me as far as money went. And, uh, so I had a good size shop at, I think it was a 3000 square foot shop that I was renting and, um, it was hard, man, but, but I, I had to, to roll over and um, got rid of that and moved back in my shop here. And, um, you know, my, my overhead went from, I think it was $12,000 a month before I could write myself a check to down to 400. And uh, when, uh, after about six months of licking my wounds and, and uh, putting bandages on my ego, um, I kind of woke up one day as a result of some martial arts um training that I'd started doing and, and kind of went, you know what, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to be, um, by myself and, and managing myself. I, I'm not a good manager of people. Um, so, so, you know, you have, you have to go through some stormy water sometimes to find the port that you're the, the most at home in. Right. And, um, so yeah, um, like I say, it took a while to, to get over the, <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess I was part of my self-worth was involved in that business. Um, but yeah, the best thing that ever happened to me for sure. And, um, so yeah, I mean, the other thing that was nice about 
you know, whatever it was, 2016, 17, um, was coming into the, the maker world is that, you know, you have people that are eager to learn. And, you know, I figure if I can push them forward and encourage them to, to you know, even if it's, if it's hobby style, great. If it's small shop style, great. Or if it's even getting into the trades and, and finding um, pride in, in doing good work there, you know, that's a pretty high calling, I figure. Well, I think one of the most telling uh, hashtags mm-hmm. out there, the, the talk about your influence is the blame Berkey hashtag. And I don't see it nearly as much today as I did a few years ago, but it was, it was those inspiring, you know, sunrise photos of, of Fiona's eyeball from a half a millimeter away or however you take those. I don't know how you're doing it, but, but, but those things that just, you know, you see it, you see it on your, on your phone uh, as you're getting your day started and it just sets you on fire and makes you want to do something really cool that day. And I, I feel like that's one of the biggest compliments anybody can pay is when they do something inspirational and they sort of, for lack of a better way to say it, they blame it on you. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that's what it's all about is hopefully giving you the the license to uh, to take a minute and, and see something with fresher eyes. Um, and, you know, and it, I the cool thing is, is if you put that out there, that vibe out there, you, you better be careful. You're not a hypocrite. So it keeps me honest, too. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 always an honor. And, you know, I'm I'm completely humbled when you know i'm in my jam in the middle of the morning and somebody in europe is like hey check this church i just walked by i snuck inside and took a couple pictures for you because i figured you'd jam on it and uh that's super that's super cool somebody is like tripping on their vacation you know like an american let's say in europe and they you know i've gotten them from thailand and everywhere else where people like hey man check this out i i I figured you'd dig this. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty that's cool. awesome. So uh, speaking of Europe, uh, Notre Dame or Notre Dame, I don't know how I've heard it pronounced both ways. I don't know what the proper pronunciation is. But when that burned, how how uh, much did you want to just jump up and get on a plane and go help reassemble such an historic building? I uh, sat on my couch and cried, to be honest, um, when it was happening. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't, but an hour later, um, I don't know. Do you guys know the Red Smith, Gerald? Uh, Gerald, Gerald got a hold of me and he said, I'm, I'm putting, I'm putting your name in the, the French application process. Are, are you up for it? And I said, yes, definitely. I, I would, uh, I would be honored to go. Um, knowing full well that the French were probably going to keep that really locked down and and in country. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, I'm pretty sure he did, you know, put my name in uh, and references and he asked for a resume and all that stuff. And um, it it didn't happen, but, but I would have gone in at the drop of a hat. I really would have. So actually I talked to my wife about it and she was cool with it too. So we we would have uh, very, very much liked to have gone to Paris for a while and work on Notre Dame. Yeah, I'm in. (laughs) So uh, just to step back a a little bit, Greg kind of kind of stole my question. And so I'm going to rephrase it in a different way. Um, 
when we were talking about when you were talking about uh, 2008 when the housing market crashed and you had to hit the reset button, uh, that is that is something that happened to my business. Well, I wasn't. I was working for somebody else as a project manager, and I hated managing people. And so when uh, that construction company filed for bankruptcy because the housing market crashed and I had to find a new job, I really did not want to go back into the management field because I did not like managing people. But I found over the years that um, I miss not necessarily managing people, but teaching people and training people. Um, and as I've started my own business, and that was kind of my reset button to start my business there, I have started to teach people. I'm, I'm not really comfortable yet to have somebody in my shop as like an apprentice. Uh, but is that something that you would like to do in the future? Because I feel like you have a ton of knowledge locked away in your brain that not a lot of people have in this world. It would, I, I think it would be a really loss to society for that to go away and not be passed on. Uh, Sorry to ask it in such a poignant way. I had a more elegant way of asking no, than great, great No, guy. no, no, no. I, me. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't right now. I'm, I'm not anti-apprentice. Um, currently, I am not in search of one. Put it that way. Um, I mean, my world is pretty cool right now with um, the level of work and and the flow of work. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not Jimmy Duresta, man. I, that guy's work rate, I, I just, it's insane. And I mean, I respect the living daylights out of him, but if, if, if you cats have been out there uh, in upstate New York and, and see the pace that he goes, that's, that's not me. Um, my, my world is based on a, on a Buddhist philosophy of, of a holistic lifestyle. And, and that is, that it's as important for me to uh, take time for morning walks, meditative type walks. And um, that's as important as a time draw for me as, as being in the shop. Now I can tilt off of that balance for a while, but I have to return to that. Um, the nice part about my world right now is if um, I want to take a flyer in the middle of the day and drop the tools and do something else, I can do that. So anytime you get, you know, uh, an apprentice type relationship going, you know, then you have to change, change your world to accommodate that. Um, so I, I would imagine that as I uh, get a couple more years going, I, I would like to kind of re relive the uh, YouTube thing when I don't have so much um, time or uh, money commitments coming out of the shop. <clears throat> so that I could see that being probably the more likely avenue of, of a way I'd like to pass on some knowledge. But it's tricky, you know, because mainly, I mean, I don't have te techniques really like woodworkers, like bench workers. Um, you know, my, my background is, is job sites, um, you know, carpentry and in crazy, I mean, I cut my teeth in the Caribbean, building multi-million dollar homes with um, cross-cultural, multilingual, uh, um, you know, no education, a lot of the crew, um, you know, just these crazy situations where you're trying to manage, manage people for people, you know, that are, that are high dollar folks out of Boston and New York and with those expectations and, you know, you're, you're half import export 
uh, guy and, you know, customs and, you know, all, it's, it was just a train wreck. But, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my background that, you know, there is this sort of level of chaos that's, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm kind of mixing up a bunch of stuff, but what I do, and I think what my value is, is very hard to quantify um, into like, here's how you do this one process. Um, but it, to me, it's, it's more about the headspace and, and pr the problem solving uh, on the fly and how to adjust the skill set that you have to what's in front of you. So that's kind of, I mean, that's why I get called on these sketchy um, repairs and damages and stuff like that, I think, um, because, you know, <laughs> I mean, you go on, you know, your reputation precedes you, whatever that reputation is. But a lot of times you'll go on and pull into a church and there'll be a bunch of guys standing there and they kind of part and just kind of, oh, here he is. That, that's him. That's him. I see him. <laughs> and it's kind of like, hi, everybody. <laughs> so, you know, and then you try to sort things out. And so I don't know. I, I'd like to push that uh, type of headspace. You know what I mean? That, that kind of, okay, take, because it starts with seeing, you know, that's where the see more, make better thing comes from. It starts with seeing everything and seeing more than everybody else. Um, and that kind of observational thing and then responding to the observations. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah. I think... Well, <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Brian. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I think headspace is, is really important. I think that's something that's really hard to teach like, and also really hard to learn. There's There are days where I'm out in the shop and I am not really in the mood or in the flow and uh, it's a frustrating day and my work shows it like I like I can't cut to a line to save my life if I'm if I'm having a frustrating day. Hey, so sometimes it's just better just to take the day off. But if you take the day off, then you don't get paid that day. So that's the, <laughs> the unfortunate the conundrum. thing about running your own business. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask a question that, that I've asked a couple other people and and uh, it's not meant to be a trick question or anything like that. But but the question is, how old were you when you realized you could make anything? What what was that point in your life? Have you had? I'm guessing you've had that epiphany because because of the work you do. It is the question that you feel like you could make anything if you have that it's, point, or the point when you were a little kid and you made something and you went, "Oh, okay, I, I don't, I don't know exactly." It's, it's a little bit of both. And, and it doesn't mean, I, I guess I definitely had that point in my life. And that doesn't mean I can sit down today and just whip out anything that, that anybody puts in front of me. But I realized that with enough time and enough effort, I can do it. I don't, I don't care what it is. If you, if you want me to make a yacht, I, I can make one. It'll take me a while, but I can, I can make one. And, and I find that a lot of people like yourself who, you know, you walk into situations having no idea what you're about to get into, but you, you, I, I guarantee you, there's some confidence that you have that I don't care how weird it is. We'll get there. Yeah. And when did that happen uh, for you? I would say probably the biggest um, epiphany moment like that was um, going like crazy on, on a church job that I was there for two and a half years. And um and it just kind of, it was a, it was a total, you know, sliding in to first base with your hair on fire type of finish. You know, we were, we delivered the last of the furniture 
the Saturday night before the rededication service on Sunday morning. We were there at 10 o'clock that night. And um, by design, because uh, we had we had uh, didn't want a lot of people to see it ahead of time. So it was like the altar table, the ambo, and the presider's chair, the, the main free furniture suite. Um, we, we installed uh, nine, 10 o'clock at night, but it was in there was, you know, get out the door, go put on a tie and, you know, the bishop showing up and then you march in and do everybody's does the thing. And, and I remember sitting there in the front row, the, the church typically is way cool about uh, honoring the craftspeople in the rededication uh, service. You get typically get a, you know, front row seat it's it's very cool um but i i remember looking down and looking back up and the main altarpiece we did there was was 29 feet tall <laughs> and i remember looking up and you know uh, gothic architecture is is pointy for a reason it's meant to draw your eye heavenward right and i remember you know kind of tuning out what was actually going on but starting at the bottom of that and and <laughs> my eyes just kind of drifted up and went dang uh, yeah i guess we made that and it's super insane but we did it and i think that would be that moment for me of just going yeah I, of course then you think that you know 28 churches are going to be knocking out down your door on monday and you know <laughs> i didn't get another call for like 18 months so <laughs> It's always interesting to me to to hear the answers to that question because I, I think there's some people who know that, but they don't realize they know that, you know, that 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 sophomoric kind of thing. Like you know, but you don't know that you know. And and then there are other people who who've definitely embraced that. That yeah, I don't I don't care what you once you drop off at my front door, we'll be able to, we'll be able to handle it. I mean, I heard you talk about, you know, plaster casting or plasticine uh, sculpting, and you obviously have the woodworking and trim and all these other things and silicone molding. And it's like, where does it stop? At, at what point can you no longer do this? It's like, eh, no, I think we'd probably do it. Some of the uh, uh, biggest steps in my career of learning have been when someone asked me to do something I had never done before. And, and I may have been scared to do it, but I wasn't in a position to turn down work at the point. And so I was like, okay, right. I'll do it. And then you just have to go figure it out. And I think I, I always think about it, like, you know, the woodworkers that God bless them, you know, Sam Maloof or whatever that have been in the shop, been bench side for 20, 30 years. They have a they have a skill set that's like this. They're they're at the height of their craft, right? But it's a fairly narrow craft, but yet it's like super highly honed. To me, I feel like my my pyramid of knowledge is like this. So there's nothing that I I don't believe honestly that there's any skill that I have that is hyper tuned as far as physical, um, tactile skill sets, right? But there's this super broad um, exposure to skills and, and a rudimentary knowledge on the outside to, you know, to better knowledge inside. But I figure that's a, that's a really stable pyramid, <laughs> the way I like to think about it, um, not too high and super wide. And um, that's kind of how I like to think and it all is underpinned by headspace. 
So same with me, Brian. There are times um, I'll walk out of the shop without, I'll, I'll just turn and lock the door and we'll do that another day. And I'm going to go, you know, get my sister-in-law some ice cream or something. I don't know. Again, that's, it's, it's a lifestyle choice for me of, um, you know, there are times when my wife will, will walk in the shop and I'll look up from the bench and she'll just turn around and walk right back in the house. She's like, yep, I know that look, not even, you know, <laughs> but she knows that it's just part of the, part of the process. Yeah. You sometimes know. the most frustrating things, the most frustrating times is the times that I won't give up at all. My wife will be like, hey, we need to go or we have an appointment for whatever. And I'm just like, I, I want to solve this problem before I leave. And then I sit there and be even more frustrated because I can't solve the problem. But then she'll make me leave because we have this appointment or whatever. And then when I come back the next day, it's just like, oh, why didn't I think of this thing? And then all of a sudden I'm back off running again. I always find it bizarre that you can you can leave a problem like that and your subconscious continues to work on it. Even though you're, you have, you have no dog in that fight. And all of a sudden, you know, you come back and it's like, well, that, why, how did that answer get in my head? And it's because you've been yeah. sitting there processing all that stuff, you know, while you're asleep or whatever else. I don't know what the magic is. I wish I were a neuroscientist. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I've, I've bolted straight out of bed, straight out of a dead sleep and just gone straight out to the shop uh, when something like that happens. So, oh, wait you know, I, I think I can do it this way. And of course you got to get your hands on it straight away. I have to get my hands on it straight away before I forget. That's, yeah. that's one of the things I, I think I got from my father. Um, my dad, my brother and I are all insomniacs. And, and I say that not tongue in cheek, but, but it's a real thing. Right. And growing up, my dad would just get out of bed at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever when he couldn't sleep and go down to the typewriter and just start going. And an hour later, when he was feeling a little tired, he'd go back up to bed and that was that. And and he shared with me one time, he said, I used to fight it. I don't fight it anymore. I just get out of bed. I put down on paper what I need to put down on paper. And then, you know, it clears it out of your nice. mind and, and away you go. And, and I've adopted that. I, I do the same thing. You know, I, I have trouble sleeping a lot and, and it's, you know, being a creative, a designer, I've got sketchbooks that kind of lay all over my house and I've, I've always got a pencil in my hand. <laughs> and if there's some idea gnawing at me, it's like, you better get it down now or it'll go away. They're, they're very fleeting. Um, and it's, it's interesting how that works. And I've, I've also, you know, on the other side of things, I've always got a guitar right next to me too. Um, because those ideas are even more fleeting if you don't if you don't figure out what you're trying to do. So it's interesting how that works. Well, well, for me, this this whole thing has been a super strange journey because, um, you know, I was raised in a uh, preacher's household, a real lockdown Protestant um, Baptist hardcore um, preacher's household. And so by the time I was 18 and out of high school, I was um, I, I was done. I was maxed out on that and really uh, went crazy for the next, you know, 10 years or so. And, um, and this whole thing sort of started coming back to, I never thought I'd be working in fancy Catholic churches. And, uh, but, but it's, it's been kind of, um, you know, I guess you, at some point you wonder if you're called to do something, you know what I mean? It's, it's super weird um, because I really rebelled against that my whole growing up and uh but then again you look back on a career that's almost 
40 years long now and you go well i guess maybe <laughs> maybe that's what i was meant to do which is is super cool i mean i'll tell you one story just in kind of tying this all up but uh we were tidying up that big altar piece and um my brother-in-law squid came around the corner we were in the church and he said hey man you better you better check this out in the front row middle of the week right but i i poked my head around the the altar piece and uh there was an 80 year old guy 80 ish year old guy sitting in the front row crying just by himself and uh, i was like oh geez what what do we got here you know so i so i went down sat down next to him and i said um uh, is any is there anything i can do can i go get the priest for you and uh this this gives me uh onion skin or whatever chicken skin to the day but um he turned to me and he said no you've done quite enough <laughs> and i didn't quite know how to to take it um but we had just installed the the mary altar which traditionally um when a couple is getting married uh the bride will kneel at that altar i guess during the marriage ceremony and uh we had just finished the mary altar which was you know 20 foot tall and i don't know 10 feet wide something like that and he said the the last time i saw that altar my wife was kneeling at it um back in you know 1937 or something like that and it wasn't the one that his wife kneeled at but to me that was one of those epiphany moments where you just go yeah we can talk about craft and we can talk about art and design and that's why i do what i do but there's moments like that when you realize that this isn't screwing around either. It's this affects people's lives. And uh, that's super cool. Super cool. So um, oh, that's awesome. He ended up bringing in pictures of the original altar. He, you know, took the original photos down somewhere and got us eight by 10 black and white pictures of his wife, you know, at their wedding which it was like wow this is super cool so so yeah that's awesome that's <laughs> well it's, it's so compelling when you know that your work affects people in a very positive way like that whether that's you know bringing back these really great memories or uh just making a space feel feel complete like it used to be so my my last question is is that anybody that has followed you for any length of time knows that you have a couple of loves of food you either love tacos or you love bacon if you had to give one of those uh, up yes. what would it be which one that's not cool man you can't you can't just like you can't do that you can't just like ambush me no <laughs> I should, I, I didn't, I see, I didn't want to text okay. you and tell you that this was going to be the hardest question of the night, but I, I, I understand cool, your, your pain. Okay. So we got to break it down. Okay. Bacon. I consider to be meat candy, right? I mean, it, it is the candy of, of all meats. Okay. I gotta, I gotta interrupt However, you there though. Can I interrupt you real quick though? So <laughs> sausage though, what about sausage? If we're going to break this down, we got to do it right. So sausage, I like way better than bacon. I just think bacon has a better PR guy. What? No. Am I insulting you now? Shots fired. <laughs> I, 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 I think we're done here. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Listen, I respect sausage. I really do. But bacon okay, I'll, is I'm a gonna visceral, I'm gonna emotional. And have... it, it's an emotional reaction to a piece of meat, dude. I mean, bacon. Yes. Think about it bacon really 
You know what I'm saying? But that being said, I was raised on tacos, man. I, uh, my dad was involved um, with migrant workers and uh, Juan and Bertha Martinez uh, introduced me to proper tacos when I was probably four years old. And that is, um, that's just mother's milk, you know, Liebfrau-Misch, as the Germans would say. Um, it's, it's just... <laughs> So if I had to, I, I, I mean, I eat tacos two, three times a week. And as I'm aging, I'm trying not to eat as much bacon. So, <laughs> so it's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst question I've ever been asked on, on a podcast. Oh, sorry. <laughs> It, it took us to a so dark place. Oh, I was trying to. Yeah. I was trying to end it on a I'm light. Wicked uncomfortable light. right now. Oh no. I was trying to end on a lighthearted note. I didn't know we were going to get so dark. So, but what no, my takeaway no, is no. is that if you and I ever go out for lunch to save you your health, I should eat the bacon before you have a chance to get to the bacon, and then you have the taco. No, because he. You are going to hesitate in front of the sausage, God, which yeah, he who hesitates is done. You're done. You're yeah, done. It's all so over. this is a moot point, really. So if you want to, we can talk about chorizo tacos, which is a sausage. So we could go there if you want. See, now, like I say, I, I'm not against sausage. I, I respect sausage and its place in the world. But sausage knows that b bacon is the king of, of meat, you know, especially of the breakfast meats. I feel like your knowledge is, I, I, I got myself in trouble here. You did. You truly, truly did, my friend. You are swimming in shark-infested waters right now, bro. Uh, all right. Oh, the admonishment. So so are we going to call it a, a draw that, it's, that, that there's no way it's ever going to happen? There's no way you'd ever give one up? Yeah, no, no. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, Andy, would you give up breathing? No, I won't. <laughs> well, I think that's a fun note to end on. And I, and I would like to say I've got here in my notes, um, if we ever meet in person, Andy, that is the one thing I guarantee we will do is have some table saw tacos together. Absolutely. And we, can Absolutely. Clink, we can clink them like champagne on New Year's Eve <laughs> as we as we get ready to devour whatever's between the the two halves of the shells so i i hope that i truly do i hope that happens someday i've i've run into i've had opportunity to to shake the hands of a number of people in the maker community over the years and it's always been an incredible joy and i i hope we have that opportunity someday if i find myself in, in illinois uh, to be able to do that but uh, I think we should probably wrap up here, Brian. Does that sound all right? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, Andy, once again, I want to thank you for being on our podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Absolutely. And thank you, guys. Again, anyone who wants to check out Andy's work, you can check out Andy's Instagram at Andy underscore Berkey. And if you want to check out my social media, I'm at Greg's Garage on YouTube and also Skyscraper Guitars on YouTube. All right. And if you want to check out my stuff, I'm brianbenham.com. And that has links to all of my YouTube and social media, Instagram type things. And if you can't remember that and you're listening to this podcast, the makersquestpodcast.com will have all the links to Andy's, Greg's, and my stuff in the show notes. Thank you for listening.